It's the Staza Pod for the week of March 4th, 2022. Can you believe it? We've made it this far. Uh, what is happening? Well, I took the day off. I didn't actually do a stream on Tuesday. Instead, I went to New York City, uh, picked up some very fascinating artifacts. I'm going to post a breakdown of my haul on patreon.com slash jesse Destasio. You can check it out there. Uh, and uh, just generally took some time to not be in the hustle of uh, e-commerce for, uh, I don't know, two or three days. And I got to tell you, it snapped into focus the idea for what comes next. And I know a lot of people have been asking for ninjas. I think I got a solution to get some ninjas to people very quickly. It's going to be a big sort of army building opportunity. So that's going to roll out soon. And I never would have had that epiphany had I not just taken the week off to uh, go and be a human being for a little while. I also went to an actual movie theater. My first time since Dune appeared in October. And I saw Spider-Man No Way Home or whatever the home variation of the title is. Uh, I'm going to hold my thoughts on that film because I'm going to go see The Batman. And I want to sort of compare and contrast these two films together. I know that what this nation and what this world needs more than anything is an, uh, a geek voicing his opinions about uh, blockbuster superhero films. I know this is sorely lacking in our economy, and I hope to infuse the marketplace with this much-needed, scarce uh, form of talking. Now, what you may start seeing pop up online are a brand new Rex Gannon figure and the official version of the Assassin number 34 from MoFos, from most toys. Now, why are these out? I've never seen or heard anything about these figures. Well, these were Patreon advanced orders. It pays to be a patron. You get to order stuff well in advance of public drops. And uh, in the event that I happen to take a week off and you're a patron and you participate in one of these pre-orders, you get the goods well before anybody else. So I think that that alone is worth cost of admission, and I hope to see you soon on Patreon. Speaking of which, let's get to some Patreon questions with our question of the week from Gordon McKinnon Hall. He says, how are you liking Elden Ring? And this is followed up by Red asking a similar question. What are the current stats and loadout of Cray in the game? So, uh, obviously I, I'm completely plugged in and obsessed with Elden Ring. There's, uh, there's no denying it. I'm back. I'm a gamer. Uh, I'm in my element. Now, let's get through stats very quickly. Uh, I actually purchased Elden Ring both for PlayStation 4 and for PC. There are different groups of friends I want to play with, and there is not uh, cross-platform compatibility to this point. So, had to get it for both. Uh, Cray is usually my character in fantasy RPGs. He is on my PC. It's a uh, thief or assassin class character, and um, I have not gotten very far with that. I, I realized it's this is a game not really suited for a smaller screen, which I have on my PC. That's the computer that I sort of stream on Twitch with. So I decided to wait and put my time into the PlayStation 4 version, which is on the big screen, and uh, a much better playing experience, even if the graphics are a little bit inferior. So, on the PlayStation version, I created 
a samurai class, and his name is Yoshi. By the way, before I give the stat break down, I don't want to forget this. Uh, you can have passwords in group slots that will show you different icons and give you priority for other people using that password. This will not prevent them from summoning other people uh, if you put it in the group slot, one of four group slots. So in my first group slot, I have the password pizza out. I'd encourage you guys to use it and hopefully we can see each other in the multiverse. So stats for Yoshi, he's level 16. Uh, I have not put a lot of time into this game so far. I really can't sit still for longer than about an hour. So it's been about an hour of play uh, every day since it came out. For Vigor, he has 13 points. Mind is 11 points. Endurance, 14. Strength, 16. Dexterity, 15. Intelligence, 10. Faith, 8. And Arcane, 8. So um, my immediate goals are to kind of put a couple points into strength, and then I want to start building up intelligence, uh, and I want to be able to cast some sorceries. It does appear sorceries are overpowered in this game, and uh, ultimately I decided to go with the samurai class just because it looks amazing. Uh, I'm also not rocking any special weapons. I've just upgraded and used the Ashes of War on the sort of standard katana, and it seems to be doing pretty good. It can... Uh, you know, it'll one-hit kill any sort of human-like NPC and, uh, you know, takes two or three for anything more robust than that. So, for now, weapon-wise, I'm pretty happy with everything. My thoughts generally are, this is a masterpiece. It, it is very rare in this day and age where things are promised and delivered in the way they are sort of marketed or in the way that you would hope, right? We're sort of in this, this cycle where even movie trailers are very uh, misleading. And obviously, uh, games have a long history of sort of uh, being shipped incomplete or needing DLC to finish the full experience or any number of those things. This is something that actually delivers on the premise and the promise. It is a sort of perfected form of the Soulsborne series. Um, if you have never played Dark Souls or Bloodborne or Sekiro... Um, they're amazing, amazing games, and I highly recommend them. But I do think that Elden Ring might be a really great place to start and then go back and play those other games more as a curiosity, because I do think of Elden Ring as the sort of ascended form of the ideas and the themes of, the, of that game genre. So I highly recommend it. I'm super happy with the game. I'm taking my time exploring everything, haven't really fought too many bosses, uh, and I'm, it's very blissful. I'm in heaven. I love it. I hope to see you guys on there. Use the uh, group password and maybe our paths will intersect. Oh, I forgot to mention also, while I was in New York City, I went to an H.R. Geiger exhibit at a small gallery, uh, I guess in the Lower East Side, around that neighborhood. Um, not the best exhibit I've been to. It was pretty small and uh, not a particularly dynamic space. But, you know, getting to see some of Geiger's work up close is, is always a, a treat. I will also post some of those pics on Patreon as well. Um, I, you know, the, the real draw for me with seeing art of artists that have really influenced me and that I admire greatly is getting up close to their work. Because I think it, it tells you something very different. We think we know what these 
paintings or these works of art look like, but really when you're face to face with it, there's all these intricacies that come to life that are, just do not show up in a book or in a JPEG or things like that. And Geiger is no exception. You get up close to that and you will see a very, very meticulous mechanical uh, layering of different effects, usually with an airbrush, sometimes with splatter. But the, these works that you can appreciate from afar, uh, they are incredibly intricate. It is like a, 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 it's like a clockwork or, you know, a tiny, all the gears in a watch, um, which ironically is a sort of theme running through a lot of his work as well. Uh, but if you have the chance, you should absolutely go and look at his work up close in person. Um, it is sort of staggering how neatly organized and almost grid-like everything is. And we're talking on the like, molecular level. This is not stuff that, that sort of is apparent in any of my exposure to his work prior. It's just sort of there and hidden. It's a detail that, you know, absolutely would be missed otherwise. It makes me think a lot of uh, Sid Mead. I went to his exhibit in Japan right before he died. And you go up very close to Sid Mead's work... And it is a mess. It's very chaotic. And it's uh, all these kinetic lines sort of seemingly sloppily applied. But when you get back and you zoom out of his work, it all looks very cohesive and not impressionistic at all. So uh, it's always exciting and, you know, a special thing to kind of like get to breathe the same air as these works and, and pick up on these little details. So I highly encourage that if you can. Moving along to non-Elden Ring-related news, we got a question from Lane. Are there Void Gears on other planets? For those new to the mythos of Knights of the Slice, or for those who haven't read uh, the story so far on ToyPizza.com, let me give you a brief reminder. Void Gears are mechanized, sentient creatures, usually in a very decrepit state, and they sort of wander around the surface of Geoa, and uh, Cyber Mama and her Bugmen encounter a pair of them uh, during a great story that was illustrated by Ian Amling, the legendary Ian Amling. So you can check that out on the site if you haven't already. Uh, I personally have not encountered Void Gears anywhere else, but uh, it stands to reason they might exist elsewhere. I think that's a reasonable assumption. Moving along to Daniel Hartzler. Since this week's livestream got preempted by the State of the Union, can we get a state of the order rundown of where all the Knights of the Slice currently are in the lore? Um, boy, there are hundreds of Knights, so this might be tough, but top of mind, let me see what I can share. So, obviously, Lime, he dead. He's still dead. Not changing there. Teal, when we last saw him in, uh, well, I guess the less I say, the better, because this is spoilers. What I would encourage people to do is to order normal, normal combat, number one, the pros zine that's on the store. There are not a ton of copies left, by the way. Uh, this is very close to being locked away, and uh, these texts and manuscripts might not see the light of day in another form. So if you haven't read that story, it's pretty crucial to everything happening today, 
and you may want to go and pick that up while there are still a few remaining copies left. Quick side note, on the topic of things soon to be sold out of the store, we are running really low on Star Marshall. You guys did an incredible job of putting a huge dent in what was supposed to be three evergreen figures always available on the store. Those three figures are the light green Star Marshall that includes a special bonus secret head, uh, the Star Marshall Crux, which is a beautiful metallic red underbody, and the metallic silver armor, and uh, Catclaw, who also made a debut in the Card Slicer 2-pack. So I was looking over my inventory the other day, and I'm shocked how low the inventory on those three are. They were supposed to last, you know, maybe a year, 18 months if I could do it, but uh, they've proven to be incredibly popular. So I'll make you this deal. If you guys can sell out those styles, we'll get some uh, new Star Marshals in before too long. Anyway, back to the state of the order, where the Knights are currently. Um, Brick, the Red Knight, has been in semi-retirement. He's not in active duty. He is raising a child with his wife. Um, that brings us to the new version of Teal, Bollinger Burton. He is still the de facto leader of Knights of the Slice, as uh, that offer was made to him by Fred of Fred Foods, and he accepted. This is after he thought he had dispatched with Cross Skulls, although I think we have reason to believe otherwise. I'll tell you what, uh, Daniel, if you want to make a list of what additional knights you'd like to know the whereabouts of and email it to me, the next pod or the next opportunity I get, I'll go through line by line and let people know. Uh, my brain uh, does not have the capacity to sort of remember all of these and in order. So <laughs> if you do that, I will uh, follow up on this interesting topic. Next question from Charlie Pope. Could zombies exist in the Knights of Slice universe? And if so, is it one of those universes where they are aware of zombies, slash zombie movies, etc.? Or has the thought never crossed their minds of a living dead creature? Um, you know, I, I tend towards no, just because zombies are so overplayed at this point in culture. You know, we've had uh, more than a decade of The Walking Dead, and I think that's done a pretty good job of exploring every facet of zombie culture. Uh, what I would say, alternatively, is that there are undead creatures, obviously. I think you could argue Alexander is that, or more specifically, was that during his internment inside of the pyramids. I think you could make the argument Hadith is a version of an undead creature locked away in that armor. Uh, this is, of course, referencing normal combat number one. No, sorry, that's not normal combat. That is Reforging Olympus, the ebook on ToyPizza.com. I can't even keep all these narratives straight at this point. So I think they would be aware of the concept of zombies from entertainment. Um, I think that we've we do have some undead themes running through certain characters. I just I have no enthusiasm. I could not muster. I could not feign excitement for the idea of exploring a traditional zombie story or things like that. It's like, I don't know, it's it's so cliche at this point. Lance Tomimoto, where would you go on vacation if you could go anywhere in the world and had time off to go? I would absolutely go back to Japan. Um, I, I do not think my chances of getting into China are very good and won't be for a long time. 
uh, but maybe a stopover in Hong Kong could be really constructive for the business side of things. So yeah, I just, I miss Japan. Uh, while I was in New York City, I do this little Japan loop in Midtown. I go to Book Off, which is a, you know, pretty prevalent chain uh, in Japan, but there are a couple stores in the U.S. Most of them are on the West Coast, but we have one in New York City. Fantastic store. Uh, so I went to Book Off, went to Kinokunaya, a Japanese bookstore, and then went to Otoyo, a truly fantastic Japanese restaurant in a very traditional sense. And, uh, you know, it, it made me nostalgic and made me miss uh, being in Japan. So, yeah, that would be my pick. Next question from Matt Connolly. Is there any relation between Rex and General Beowulf, a lost uncle or something? Also, how long has Jessica and Vaughn been separated? Technically, that's two questions. Uh, Jessica and Vaughn have been separated since just before the events of Rex Gannon, the indestructible man, although their relationship is very on and off. So um, we can sort of assume sporadic visitations throughout that decade plus. As far as a relation between Rex and General Beowulf, there is none that have been revealed to me at this time. Next up, we got Brett Barnacle. I know Knights of the Slice as a video game has been discussed in the past. Has there been any consideration of doing a demo or sprite creation using GB Studio? I love the idea of seeing classic Knights on a Game Boy and hearing Z Star 7 traps, tracks in chiptune format. Um, I don't think I would focus on Game Boy. Uh, I do have a plan for a Knights of the Slice video game, which is very lo-fi, to say the least. Uh, but the simplicity of my aspirations in that field um, have to do with wanting to be able to actually physically deliver something. And this is a lot of my philosophy behind card slicers, right? Everybody has a card game idea or a tabletop gaming idea. I've been approached by probably a dozen different people looking to exploit Knights of Slice IP in some sort of other format. But the problem is their ambition, these are typically sort of first time creators. And their ambition always is oversized based on what they can actually put out. And that's not just limited to first-time creatives. I know a lot of people that are my peers that want to do stuff like this, maybe put down some art, maybe take a couple baby steps towards having this idea executed, but they never really bring it to bear. And so anything I embark on, I want to make sure it is small and concise and manageable, most importantly. I think this is one of the big problems that a lot of Kickstarter video games run into. Uh, their ambitions are outweighed by their tangible ability to deliver something. And that's why, uh, you know, uh, in many respects, backing video games or certain uh, card games or tabletop games on Kickstarter can become a complete money sink. And there's, you know, millions and millions of dollars tied up in these aspirational projects that actually never get off the ground. So anything I do, I want to make sure reasonably I could do myself or with one or two other people helping to supplement. Um, Game Boy doesn't appeal to me as much as traditional 8-bit or 16-bit because I, I just don't think there's enough dynamicism in the pixel art and the sort of, you know, minimal color range. Um, so... 
we will see. I, I really, the next big thing, you know, the next big milestone for me being able to put any time into the idea for the Knights of Slice video game is just plotting it out because it's not done. It's I have a very rough skeleton. I have a binder full of reference, but I've never sat down and actually written what this thing is and what it isn't. And until I do that, until I establish the parameters, uh, you know, it is it is just vapor. It is not a tangible thing. But I do like the idea of sort of uh, chiptune Z Star 7 track. So I, I think that that would absolutely be something included. While we're on the topic of games and gaming, Paul Weyer has a question here. Any card slicers that you feel most difficult about allotting stats to? I know whenever I try making games, I tend towards certain characters being slightly too good at things, which wrecks the balance. Oh man, do I ever. This is very prescient question, because I just went through this, right? Uh, I have just printed a bunch of new card slicer stickers, and typically I want about 15 points that can be allotted to stats, and I like to have them allotted in the increments of 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. This makes it very easy uh, when it comes to sort of rolling dice and figuring out, you know, what stats you hit and things like that. Now, there are characters that are going to get introduced that do not follow this sort of sequential number of powers, right? They Some stats are different, but ultimately it works out to 15 points total in their stats. So I had to sort of venture away from just using one of those numerical values per stat and actually find a balance to things. And it was tough. I had to kind of do a bit of math and, and adjust things. We're going to have a character that has probably the most powerful stat yet, but is really weak in other areas. Um, the particular one that really tripped me up was Rex Gannon, right? Because Rex Gannon is sort of the everyman. And because of that, you want him to have sort of everything. But to be good at everything or modest at everything um, means he would have really weak stats and be able to be overcome very easily. So that didn't make a lot of sense. Then I had to choose between, you know, like strength, which Rex is a relatively strong character for a human being, augmented human being, as it were. Um, heart, which, you know, he is kind of the heart of the story. And charisma, which... Ultimately, I ended up making his weak part because everybody kind of projects onto Rex whatever they want, right? He's sort of Tyler Durden. He's like how you imagine a perfected or very cool guy would be an act. But if you look at the sort of writing for Rex, he's kind of a tight ass, right? He's not very fun, and uh, especially in contrast to Vaughn. So, ultimately, I decided to sacrifice his charisma stat for a more balance on, you know, the other corresponding stats. Um, so, it's going to... Card Slicers is, is about to get even more interesting. There's going to be a lot of variation coming into play. You know, the, the sort of first two cards were just very uh, numerically sequential in their stats. Uh... These, this next wave that's coming in, it mixes up the game quite a bit. So I'm excited about that. I would also say, you know, creatively, making people too good at everything really sucks, right? It, it sucks the fun 
out of what characters are. You gotta make sure you build in foils to these characters. They, It is just so fucking dull to have a being that can do everything. That's why Superman has never really appealed to me. It's It doesn't work. It, it lacks humanity that we sort of recognize. So it's always good to have weak spots, and, and even if you can, have a character that's just weak in every regard, but has a sort of desire, a vaulting ambition to uh, move beyond that. That's interesting. That's character. Next question from Thomas Bucci. He wants to know if there are more figures planned, like the Vector Jump, which features a sort of standard base body and then PVC armor that goes over it. Uh, no, I don't have anything planned that sort of mimics uh, something like the Vector Jump, where there is a pretty comprehensive slip-on piece of armor. Um, the biggest issue, I think, with, with something like Vector Jump is the amount of debugging time it takes to get the fits correct is uh, pretty cumbersome and adds quite a bit to the timeline for production. Um, now that, in some respects, the decisions made with Vector Jump were ones made uh, based on sort of cash flow. The Vector Jump was the second iteration of Knights of the Slice, and I couldn't quite afford to do an entire figure, uh, but I wanted to continue the line. I had a little bit of profit that came in from Series 2, finally, but I had to be very selective about what I applied that profit to. It had to be something that could carry on the line, uh, show me a bigger return, and extend the sort of lifeline of Knights of the Slice. So the Vector Jump Armor seemed like a really smart second move, and it was, you know. In lieu of having an entirely new figure, this was something that worked with the previous figure, but made it look like a new figure, and made it feel like a new figure. Thankfully, where we are today, uh, I don't have to make such a, a sort of financial decision between not being able to afford a new entire figure uh, against just a sort of ancillary piece of armor. If I was in a different position back then, who's to say that Vector Jump wouldn't have been an entirely new figure itself with different sculpted sort of thighs and forearms, which, you know, could have added something to the overall project, but ultimately it is an iteration I'm very happy with. Nowadays, uh, given that I have a stable of really incredible artists I can collaborate with, I myself am learning more and more about 3D and uh, will probably at some point be introducing uh, some 3D work, you know, whether it's through 3D files download through Patreon or on the store or actually something that gets tooled in the future. You know, I think I could see myself crossing that bridge. But to my point, uh, I'm no longer quite as restricted or confined with figure design as I was in that second year of Knights of the Slice. So instead of sort of investing all the time and energy and money into a sort of accessory set, uh, my preference is always going to be just to do an entirely new figure. And recently, uh, there is a sort of upcoming project, which originally was envisioned as a slip-on piece, but ultimately the costing is going to be pretty much the same to just do an entirely new piece that is not slip-on, doesn't isn't sort of uh, dependent on older figures. 
And thankfully, the project is in a position where we can say, okay, let's just tool the entire thing itself. Let's save ourselves the headache of trying to get a fit, uh, you know, going back and forth, all these different samples and losing two or three weeks with China and shipping and things like that. Let's just make it easy on ourselves and uh, just tool the entire thing. Now, there is an exception to this, obviously, that people are probably thinking of. Uh, things like the poncho set and the cherubium heads, those are great. And that's a kind of a different strategy than the vector jump armor in that the poncho and the cherubium heads are a value add proposition, right? This means I can take a base figure and I, let's say I charge $20 for it. With a poncho and with a cherubium head, that becomes a $30 figure. Now, if I'm smart and I've done it correctly, to purchase those uh, additional parts costs me very little and I make a high amount of margin in that sort of uh, larger MSRP. I might lose money on the base figure, but I make a higher margin on the poncho and the cherubium heads and therefore it balances out and it is a sort of profitable venture. But the key point to the cherubium heads and the poncho versus something like the vector jump armor is that it works on multiple figures. It adds additional value to quite a few of the characters that we've introduced. Whereas vector jump can only sort of exist with a classic knight body and uh, does not have a sort of cross versatility as it were. So hopefully that gives you some insight as to your question. Next up from Brent Lawson, will we see more corpse bags? These are really fun. I enjoy trading parts with other members on the Discord. Uh, so for those outside of the Patreon and maybe outside of the daily activity of Knights of Slice, we did a corpse bag sale very recently and this was due to necessity. I, I'm trying to make more room in the workshop. I had this big bin of loose parts, you know, in the odd event that somebody dropped and broke their figure or, uh, you know, something got smashed, I would hold on to whatever parts were serviceable and send replacements to people. And over the seven years that we've been in business, that pile of spare parts and also my sort of custom builds and hand paints and things like that, it, it got very overwhelming. And there was a lot of spare parts and not stuff that I wanted to sit down and sort of match up with blank bodies and, and make into full Franken slices. So the idea of corpse uh, bags came into being. Needless to say, these were a real hit. They sold out pretty quick, and it has encouraged the community to sort of trade with each other to complete some of the artifacts that they've found. And I think that's been a really interesting and fun experiment. Uh, it was not necessarily a moneymaker, but it did clear out a lot of space, which is really the, cru the uh, very crucial part of uh, you know my plans moving into spring. Now, the downside of this experiment is I have cleaned out almost all of my spare parts. So there is not any inventory in which to put into new bags. Uh, I think it's going to be a very long time before we do it again. But it was fun and uh, I look forward to it. Maybe happening, I don't know, maybe a year's time, something like that. This was really like, as you guys saw from the pictures, there were some very, very old figure pieces in there. So it was really like seven years worth of built up uh, spare and loose parts. Next question from John Emmett. What other materials can be put into plastic for figures aside from glitter? I'm talking about something other than the color of the plastic. So the answer is surprisingly little. Um, glitter sort of works mixed into plastic because 
Uh, it is made out of another type of plastic as well as aluminum. Aluminum has an incredibly high melt point. I think it's like 12,000 degrees or something like that. Um, so there's not a ton of things that won't melt at the volcanic temperature in which the plastic is injected into the machine. Um, there is also like, and, and you know, I don't know the science behind this. I'm kind of paraphrasing and talking out of my ass here, but, um, you got to think every additive to your plastic has the potential to make it weaker, right? Because it would affect the bond of the different layers of plastic, so to speak. You know, you want the molten plastic you inject to be cohesive with itself. It has to sort of stick together on a cellular level. If you introduce outside elements that are not plastic-based, um, you are going to have plastic that just sort of doesn't, uh, there's no cohesion around those alien elements, if you follow. I know it's kind of an abstract idea, but, um, so it would just essentially make whatever you're shooting, uh, be very brittle and probably break apart at the touch. So, uh, you really don't want to mess around too much with the additives that go into the toys that you're making. Next up from Gavin Raider, if Sen 5 had to compete in the Winter Olympics, what country would Sen represent and what category would Sen compete in? Well, I think he would probably want to be recognized with the robots who wear clothes, assuming he has some kind of cyborg pride. He may, he may not. He might be sort of at odds with the human element of him. Uh, and he would absolutely compete in the event of the shot put in which he would propel his little doll's friend uh, across the sandlot. Final question for us today from Philip Barrara. How do you work through disappointment? It takes on many shapes and sizes throughout life, and so does the means of coping with it, whether as an artist, self-improvement, or circumstances beyond our control. Um, you know, I always like the quote, black care rarely sits behind a writer whose pace is swift enough. And I'm sure I'm butchering that, but that's the, uh, the basic paraphrase of it. And the idea is that if you move swiftly enough through life, um, you tend not to let things like disappointment envelop you. Other people's mileage may vary, but for me, that's proven very true. And typically, uh, I keep a swift pace by pivoting into different experiences. So yesterday, continuing to work at uh, improving my 3D sculpting tools and abilities, and uh, after about an hour feeling burned out, frustrated with the sculpture that's in front of me, not really connecting the way I want to with the idea in my head and so I pivot out of that. I go and I sit down and I do some uh, micro detail painting on a custom I'm working on and uh, inevitably that starts to become disappointing too because I have this mountain of 3D printed heads in front of me. I have a lot of incremental work I'm doing on this little uh, side project which is just for fun by the way. It's not a production thing um and you know naturally 
the black hair sits in. So I got to spin out of that. I got to go do something else. So I go to the workshop, put away all my devices, start doing some Frankenslice builds where fulfill orders. Um, so I found that that, that really works for me. Also, like I think of, you know, probably something that's universal for all of us, a bad breakup, right? We've all gone through that. And when I found myself in those positions in the past, I just kind of load up my schedule with new experiences, uh, going to a museum, going to a film, doing any number of things that could sort of just spark a new memory. I remember some, God, it must've been like 12 years ago, last really big breakup. Uh, what did I do? I went and I bought Skyrim, this game that I, everybody had been talking about and uh, I had never played. Uh, I went to Sleep No More, this sort of very uh, avant-garde, kind of a play, kind of a, a immersive experience. You know, I'd been hearing about that for years, never went. Finally did it. Crazy, amazing evening. So I, I see this pattern over and over again for myself, and I think that the, the core of it is not dwelling on the disappointment, just swiftly moving forward to the next thing. And if there's disappointment in one aspect of your life, maybe it's work, maybe it's your relationship, maybe it's, you know, creative projects, just move to a different segment of your life for a little while. I, I think getting yourself into a different zone uh, tends to help you have a little bit of perspective over the area of your life that, you know, is sort of not delivering in the way you want. To speak specifically about creativity and creative projects, um, this absolutely applies. And this is the one thing that helped me go from being an artist that just kind of sat down, you know, maybe every, uh, every couple of months and did a little doodle and felt frustrated and swore off art forever, only to come back a couple months later. Um, I mean, that was me really, you know, 18, 19, 20, even up until, geez, I guess probably, you know, zeroing in on my 30s. My 20s were really an exercise in disappointment in regards to my creativity, in, in my inability to complete any one project, any one comic book, any one short story. Um, and what changed in my 30s was I just mixed it up a lot. I never focused on one project for too long, and certainly not when they became tedious or laborious. I just had 10 different properties or ideas I wanted to tinker with, and when one became boring to me, I simply jumped to the other one. And, uh, you know, that is still very much my creative process today when I have a bunch of color mechanicals I have to design for China for a new production I put in the hours and when it starts to shred my brain like a sponge on a cheese grater I switch up and I move to working in 3D or take a break go play Elden Ring whatever the case may be I think having a variety of things and experiences in your repertoire is is the way you kind of weather the storm of disappointment, so to speak. And with that, we are done with the questions and answers for this week. Thank you guys very much for submitting. I'm going to leave you with a song by Zed Star 7 that answers the question, where's Nikki? 
And that song is called No Nikki. Peace out.
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.